Welcome back to All the Shit with Tom and Will. Thank you for joining us. This episode, I'm going to say up front, might be a trigger for some people. This conversation involves explicit description of drug use, alcohol abuse, substance abuse in general, and it also touches on sexual abuse. So if you are a person who is triggered by these types of things, just be warned. This is a conversation that involves a lot of that stuff. Tom, two for two. Another amazing interview. Man, I don't even have to try. These guys are doing all the heavy lifting. I mean, I'm just there absorbing, and I can't express my appreciation enough for Jason stepping up and agreeing to have this conversation with me. Absolutely. Much respect, Jason. I love transparency. I love openness. I think that, you know, when we embrace that, we can have real conversations, right? Which is what I'm all about. I know you you love that too. So thank you, Jason. Awesome conversation. This conversation was especially interesting to me because it opened my eyes to a world that I have not experienced personally. And I don't even have anyone in my direct orbit that has experienced the trauma, substance abuse, and really a true road to recovery that Jason has experienced. And so for me, it was a very big learning opportunity. And I came away with a new appreciation for what people go through in their lives, and particularly the concept that you don't know somebody truly until you have a conversation with them and you understand where they're coming from. It's too easy for us to judge people based on what we see at face value. And I think what you'll learn in this conversation with Jason is that this path is long and winding, and there are many, many chances to start over and effectively get your life back. Yeah, if you are fighting that battle, do not give up. Please enjoy this conversation with Jason Gray. Hello? Hello? Is anybody out there? Welcome to All the Shit with Tom and Will. He said we're hitting the record button. I like it. Hello, everybody. I think what's interesting about this, Jason, is that you and I have met twice in person so once what a year ago the first time we came out since you and jenna got married and then yesterday was the second time we hung out and i thought it was pretty awesome how comfortable you were almost immediately with just you know giving me a hug and saying what's up and it was like we've known each other instant connection yeah which is pretty cool you're my only brother-in-law so, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with this, but I know that, you know, my brother and his brother-in-law are not exactly tight buds. Right. And, you know, we, the proximity of where we live is going to prevent us from being like weekly hangout buddies. But to know that I have someone in my life who is open, honest, transparent, and I, I truly think that, you know, just based on our conversation last night, you're looking for a lot of the same things out of life and in life that I am. And that's a big part of what this series is, is my goal is to get to know as many men as I can on that personal level. And through that and through that connection, be able to build my own tool set for how I move through the world. But I think more importantly, gain a better holistic perspective of what life is for men in this country, but really around the world. And the way that it's changed from, you know, how we grew up thinking manhood was xyz and we had to accomplish these things or do these things 
to reach that title or status. And then you get to be our age. I mean, I'm, I'm 40, you're 45. Right. And we're looking back on it like, man, that was, uh, yeah, I feel like I was sold a false bill of goods, you yeah. know? So I guess if you want to introduce yourself. Absolutely. First of all, my name is Jason Gray, and I'm uh, honored to be on your show today. And uh, it is definitely serendipitous the way that the stars aligned. I feel like, uh, in a nutshell, I hit the lottery ticket when I met this family. Um, speaking of the Rieger family and all everything that branches from that, all through the community and through our family. Um, and I'm honored to be your brother-in-law. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we may have been sold a false bill of goods, you know, in our childhoods and stuff like that. And But today we get to rewrite the fundamental ideas and look at them in a new perspective and be courageous men that get to guide and strengthen others along Absolutely. the way. And I know you wanted to start with a, a meditation. Yeah, we could start with a prayer and meditation. Um, one of my daily practices is prayer, uh, meditation. I also like to read a couple little uh, verses. Um, I don't get too involved in scripture, but I do like to touch on it daily. Yeah, I stepped away from it a little bit for like, I don't know, last month or so. I haven't really been reading this, but I picked it up today in lieu of our sitting down and I wanted to see what was in here for us. And, um, you know, it's funny, oftentimes I'll just crack the book open, um, and see where it falls. It fell on July 13th. So it's about where it was creased. It's probably about where I last left off. And with so, some of the things that we're going to touch on today, I feel it more relevant than, uh, what the reading was from today. So I'm going to read July 13th from Hazelden Touchstone. It says, um, if I were to begin life again, I should want it as it was. I would only open my eyes a little bit more from Jules Raynard. Spiritual and emotional growth is a process of raising our awareness. Reflecting on our growth as men before this program and after, we see different levels of consciousness. Some of us might say we weren't all at all conscious of what it meant to be a man by the time we entered the adult world. Now we are forming an awareness of manhood. We see ourselves more as recovering, caring, strong, vulnerable men in relationships with others. We have an increased sense that our actions make a difference as sons, as fathers, as husbands, lovers, and friends. Our increased understanding of ourselves makes it possible to fulfill our potentials for growth. It is not idle fantasy to imagine beginning life again because, in a sense, we have. In recovery, it seems we have begun life again only with our eyes a little more open. Help me live this day with all my awareness. And so I think that like reading, taking away little inserts like that into your life um, as a daily practice, it really dumps into the spiritual bank. And it's, um, it's paying big dividends right now with the way that the, um, Things continue to grow as I continue to develop and grow uh, a closer connection with my higher power. Yeah, that's, I mean, I thought that was a really introspective and powerful passage. When did you start this practice of reading these meditations? I was first introduced to it 2000, 99, 2000 through AA. 
AA um, and the 12-step program, it kind of uh, introduced me to daily practices. Is that when you first got into the program? Is that when you started the program? I would say it was the first time I started the program. I was in, I was, in um, I was 21. It was in 1999. My first introduction to AA and NA or a 12-step program uh, was at first an NA meeting when I was 14. Just kind of went on a random whim with a friend. Uh, the second time I was 16, I went court ordered for an unrelated um, incident, um, not really related to substance abuse directly, but the judge seemed fit that I go check out an AA meeting. Then I went back on my own accord at 21, and that's when I started to write to the general service office out in New York and get responses and started meeting with other AA members. So if you were court-ordered to attend at 16 yeah. and then went on your own accord at 21, it sounds like you have... The, the majority yeah. of your life I've been dealing with this. So yes. let's start at the beginning. I know yesterday yeah. you had mentioned you had recently started just <clears throat> kind of writing down your memories of your life starting from birth. Mm -hmm. And I think you said you got through age eight. Got to right? eight, yeah. Yeah, so walk me through that a little bit. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I was, uh, you know, kind of uh, thinking about that this morning as well and and really i before i even knew that what i was trying to break a generational curse i don't i don't know if curse is an appropriate word but yeah so at two and a half when my father abandoned me my dna structure was like changed and it wasn't apparent immediately but by time like fast forward a year and a half or i'm sorry two and a half three years when i was taking getting pictures taken at preschool and kindergarten it was written on my face you know i still had the nice fluffy sweater on um that my grandma probably bought me for christmas you know but my face i now have cute blonde hair chili bowl cut with big blue eyes you know but i'm sitting there just like sulking you know, in preschool and kindergarten photos. Do you remember any of your feelings from that time? Yeah, man. Just ice. Just like, where's my father? Even at two, you were acutely aware of that absence in your life. No, sir. No, I, I don't have an acute awareness of two, but I believe that's what two and a half, like that's when the process began. Like the morning I woke up, my father wasn't there. I didn't realize it and I don't have an acute awareness of it until I was probably five or six, maybe four, as early as four. But um, that's when at four is when it was really like hitting me, I think. And I didn't what didn't know it was hitting me until about six or seven you know and i'd see those pictures at eight and i'd be like "Ooh, what's going on there so you were raised just by your mom yes yeah, single mom sure okay yeah. and so with that being the case you don't really have at that point a role model in your life per se to model what a man should be or how a man should act absolutely not not in the small town in 1980 it was my mom was definitely an outcast um i don't i had like zero recollection of a parent until i'm about or a father figure actively in my life aside from my father when he left at two and a half so from like two and a half to about five and a half you know um just because there weren't any 
I mean, I had like my grandfather and my uncle, but I didn't even have memories or meet them until I was like seven or eight. So the family structure that you were a part of where you guys lived, your mom had been, she'd already moved away from the nuclear family? Correct, yeah. It was a broken, the first generation of brokenness in our family was my mom's parents. My mom was the oldest of four siblings, and she was 16 when she got pregnant with her first child. I'm her fourth child, her fourth boy. So she was 22 when she had me, and so 23, and she'd already lost custody of her three boys due to substance abuse and stuff of that nature. Long story short, by the time my sister and I, my little sister and I, who's a year and a half younger than me, um, came about, my mom was just probably spinning a, a little bit out of control in our small town. And cause I remember summers staying in the car, living at my grandmother's, lots of, you know, boyfriends and stuff like that, but there were no role models. Like, I didn't even see the boyfriends or many men in my life until I was probably, like I said, six, five and a half, six. So at that point then, the men who did come into your life, were they staples, or was it more like a revolving door of whoever was currently filling that role? Um, it was a revolving door. That being said, I, the revolving door consisted of what I would imagine was probably three relationships, you know, but they, one was abusive. And that was the last one I remember before my mom married, got remarried to my stepfather. Thinking of my own childhood, I don't know, I can't pinpoint exactly when I started thinking about what it would mean to be a man. And I think... For me, it was just looking at, all right, well, who are the, the coolest, what's the coolest job that I could do? What's the, who has the most respect, authority? Those are the kind of things that I think I looked at as that's what a man is, right? Yeah. So I gravitated toward uh, the obvious you know, police officers and firefighters and stuff like that. Yeah. So for you, and this is coming from a kid who has, you know, my father was in the picture and I had a, I had a great dad. Right, so I got very, very lucky. I know I'm aware that I'm very lucky. My parents are still together, but I looked at my dad as a role model, absolutely. But he was, and I've heard this from other men too. They kind of compartmentalize their dad as their dad, and then there's other men. So yes, there's one role model there, but you're also looking out and saying, "Is what else is is this reflected? Do I see this reflected in other men?" Yeah. So for you not having that initial pillar, how did you or where did you start looking for sources to validate who you were or model who you should become? Sure. A long story short, I had 13 years, like I would say the first 13 years of my life, I had really good examples of like exactly what I didn't want to be as far as the characteristics of a man. So you knew that, that really what strict. you were seeing was not what you wanted to yes, do. Yes, sir. So my first recollection of like a man of character was would come through way of um, a girlfriend's father. But I was about 13 years old, and um, she was like, "Yeah, come over to my house, blah blah blah," and we'd hang out in the kitchen. And you know, I remember walking through the garage and seeing her father in there, and you know, he had a go kart on a stand in his car, and his, had this like huge red and black tattoo on his forearm. I just, back then, like, I didn't see anyone else in Southport, Indiana with tattoos. So back then, that was pretty bold for him to have that loud tattoo. And um, I identified with that because, you know, um, 
a lot of other people in my family, direct family, prior to moving to Indianapolis, had tattoos. Uh, so at 13, that whole process started, and there was something there. So I, I, I kind of would form these ideas of what a man would look like based off his material status. And then, you know, that evolved, though. That was like a first introduction. The second one was a bobsled Olympian, won the bronze medal with the USA Olympics, uh, has a small gym on the south side. When I was 14, I'd go in there and work out, and he, would, he showed me a different kind of man, like a man of character. Okay, what, what were some of the things that stood out to you that nothing, you remember? Nothing was shiny or, or glamorous about Artisan and Nally's gym. It's just iron sweat determination but you feel all those other characteristics and he had his metal to prove like his uh back stand up yeah to back up his talking. character yeah 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 so it wasn't all lights and glamour but it was like pure strength and then yeah so what about the man himself did he was there a when you met him like obviously you walk into the gym you know a gym's a gym yeah. but to meet the man i mean you can walk into a gym and if there's a guy that's you know Hey, yeah, the treadmill's over there. Have fun versus yeah. someone who's showing an interest and in showing, you know, yeah. a, a desire to impart their knowledge of how to train and why to train, and the lessons that can, exp- you know, you take those same tools outside of the gym and how they apply to life. Did you get some of that from him as well? Ab- absolutely. That was the th- that was the difference. You know, he showed an interest in me before I walked in. When I walked in the door, I'd never even been in a gym before. You know, he gravitated towards me. I gravitated towards him. And um, he sat me down. He had this, like, index card, you know, and have me do, like, 20 minutes of cardio before I could go do the lap pool machine. And I remember hating cardio. Yeah, <laughs> I just I, hated it. Of course, everybody hates cardio. Well, I hate cardio. I love so. it. <laughs> I love it now. And, 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 you know, when you're old like me and you stay out of shape, you don't have to put in a whole lot of hours on the cardio equipment. So you said you met him around 16 i was 14 14 okay so then from from that point to 16 when you had the court mandated order to report to a a meeting what changed what shifted and and what put you on the path to you you know now you're um you're recovering how 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 would you phrase it a recovering addict yeah i'm a person recover i'm a person in recovery person in recovery so addict is kind of out that's that's not language that is currently it doesn't accurately describe me because i'm way more complex than just an addict but i don't go around telling hey i'm jason gray i'm an alcoholic addict i have high blood pressure and a bad attitude today (laughs) sure yeah man i get that i get that um no so um i like recover a person in recovery too because um i'm not like bound to limitations that are um common in certain circles I love I love all circles, and um, my goal is to bridge gaps between circles. Um, when you talk about circles, what do you mean? Um, like you have NA, you have CA, you have SSA, or SAA, I'm sorry. You have all kinds of different 12-step groups. AA, everybody knows AA is kind of the pioneer and the founder of the 12-step program. So I was, AA is Alcoholics Anonymous, yeah. NA is Narcotics yeah. Anonymous. SAA is Sex Addicts Anonymous, CA is Codependent Anonymous, I believe. And then there's also Cocaine Anonymous, there's Heroin Anonymous. Okay, so it's just um, different. Overeaters Anonymous. A uh, Basically a blueprint of the original 12-step program from AA 
but yeah. more niche to whatever the yeah. proclivity is that has put someone on the path to recovery. Yes, sir. Gotcha. Okay. And so your goal is to really, like, you see this as a, a human condition. It's Absolutely. Not a, we all carry a cross, man. We all, uh, you boil it, boil it down to the end of the day, it's a character defect or a sin, you know, whatever you want to call it. But we can put different labels on it and and that don't uh, tie into such harsh criticism and judgments, which is a little bit better platform for people. It's more inclusive than, say, just one religious body or one recovery program or one self-help group. You know, we just want to cater to all mankind. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. And that's kind of, I, I think that's what we've bonded over a little bit is similar missions with a different trajectory and the way that we're pursuing that, but similar mission. And I think you need to have more than one approach, right? Because you're going to have people that respond to one and not the other. But if the end goal is the same, we're all pulling the same way. Yeah. So circling back then. Yeah. What was the catalyst that put you on that path? So let me back up and answer your question a little bit about, I mean, you, you asked why, where was the turning point? Why didn't you stay in the gym? Why did you end up in a uh, treatment yeah. facility at 15 yeah. or 16 and 16? Um, gangs, to sum it up in one word, gangs. Gangs, um, chemical dependency, everything that in a broken home, Everything that comes from a broken home. We went, I went from experiencing this culture and this life where there's security and peace. Both parents are working in the house with uh, careers to the father disappearing and leaving mom with nothing but credit card debt and a few nice cars and a house and two kids. So we moved back from this really cool house by the baseball field to a small double behind um, green tree apartment complex which was divided by a railroad track i immediately got picked up by gangs local gangs and um started rolling around and just doing whatever acting crazy acting out and my mom was like put a kibosh to it she was like this is happening um so she tried to fix manage and control the situation by doing a geographical change which it worked to an extent. I went, I just played the whole chameleon role, which I did as a survival technique my whole life. I went from being a gang member in Southport to a hippie in Center Grove, which I hung around. I just, I did a lot of drugs and dropped out. And by 18, I was addicted to crack cocaine. And by 21, I was looking for a way out. Was it through school? Kids you knew at school, met at school that kind of brought you into that fold or how did you <clears throat> like walking home from the gym you just ran into these kids how how is yeah. that how did that originate yeah so um this kid that i would run around with kid i looked up to is like um my best friend you know we would ride skateboards um he was like that we were at that weird age i was anyways i don't know if it was he was pretty he was a really good kid but we were into like shoplifting, skateboarding, anarchy, you know, just yeah, being rebellious. rebellious. Yeah. yeah. So that was my guy. We had, we were the guys with the little razors opening up the Christmas presents and then looking at them and taping them back up, putting them under the tree, you know. Uh, his brother, he's just jacked. You know, he was just that guy but that was always top-notch guy, physically fit, highly motivated. 
that whole phys- physical fitness thing was raging at that time, you know, and I you just kind of Arnold and Arnold was real big. Arnold Bodybuilding was, was taken off. That's right. All that stuff. Yeah. Lou Ferrigno is kind of stepping down and making some space, but still doing his thing. He's still doing his thing today, man. Love Lou. Tanning beds, branch chain amino acids. Yeah. <laughs> Will, like, yeah, you hear that? In the you need to get in the tanning bed, bro. You're a little pale. <laughs> yeah, so in that, when you're talking about your friend and his brother, are you introduced to steroids at all? Is he is no. he that big? No. Yeah, probably because now that I think about it, you know, I never got, I was never fortunate enough to get pulled into that culture. Although I was kind of looking for it. I was a little young, but um, I think there were some older kids that were starting to find their way. Yeah. Anabolics and stuff like that. You could order online in the back of a magazine type of thing. Um, maybe even probably oral stuff, you know, oral testosterone boosters or something. I don't know. Yeah. So from that, you decided to go the narcotics route instead. Oh, man. What was the... So what was the... Do you remember your first time using and what the circumstances around that were? Um, the first fun story I could tell you about using, I was 13 and I would, I had older brothers, you know, and I had a little sister, but I ended up, um, swiping a piece of acid from my older brother and, uh, split it in half and shared it with my sister and then jumped in the car and invited ourselves to a party with said older brothers <laughs> And we sat on the front porch while they went inside and were just drinking beer, you know, in the, those days. And uh, we sat on the front porch and just watched the tree line and stuff like that and the clouds. And we were just like, oh, my gosh, look, that's weird how Yankovic's hair, like, that's him. Like, you see a silhouette. And just sat there and tripped for a while on acid. But then, so my stepfather left and my three older brothers kind of moved in. And one had just um, gotten out of um, the army from Desert Storm, just got back from Desert Storm. One um, was dishonorably discharged for smoking pot, and the other one uh, couldn't go to in the army because of medical reasons, and so he was home. But we would just rage. We would have, they would, anyway, they would rage. And they weren't even raging, really. They were 22, and they were all home, and they were drinking lots of beer. So you're... Intro to this. First time smoking pot was at eight, though, to back up a little bit. Eight years old. Eight years old. Is this all... So would you say that the the primary introduction for you was actually through your older brothers and your family directly and not an external influence? 100%. Okay. Yeah, I learned to roll pot from my brother. And the first time I ever rolled a doobie, it was a cocktail doobie. I'm not going to throw which one of them under the bus, but they know who it is. <laughs> So, I mean, we don't have to harp too much on this. It's, you know, it's a, it's a path that you start to walk. You find yourself going further and further down it. Did you have a goal in mind when you were using these substances? Was it, was it an escape mechanism for you or was it more just it's something to do because it's a small town and my brother's doing it so it must be cool? No, it wasn't really a small town thing for me because I was living in a big town. My older brothers from a small town were coming here, hanging out. So you were in Indianapolis at that time? Yeah, I thought I was the big show. I got you. Not my older brothers. But I didn't realize it at the time. I was doing drugs partly, like at first, just like to explore, to be creative. I mean, LSD will definitely do that to you. For sure. 
I started using it for other things too, to like, oh, I don't want to think about X, Y, or Z anymore. I don't want to think about this trauma or whatever. This seems to glaze it. I don't even think, I don't even know if I realized that it was glazing my feelings until I was probably, I don't know, 15 years into recovery or something. You know what I mean? Back then he was, I wasn't doing it to glaze my feelings or to check out or to cope or to manage. At least not consciously. Not consciously, no, but I definitely was, just not consciously. So then when, we'll jump ahead to 21 when you voluntarily got back into the program. What was the catalyst for that? What motivated you to do it? And who was there a person that helped you either point you in that direction, give you the guidance to say, hey, man, I'm worried about you. I need you. you know, I would love for you to either come with me or go to one of these things. What was the circumstances surrounding that? Sure. So I'm going to back up just a little bit. My father took his life. He murdered himself. And prior to that, I... And how old were you when that happened? I was 21. Okay, so this he, is right at that time. Yeah, it was just after my father lost his life. I was down in Houston, Texas, living with him. I had sought him out, and um, I called. My stepmom answered the phone, said my father wasn't doing well. I made a plan and was down there three days later. I had this girl drive me down there. At what point did you decide that you wanted to find your dad? And how long did it take you to find him once you decided to start looking? Or did you know so where this, he was? Yeah, this was like a, this wasn't a new practice. This was like one of my old things. So like when I was 14, I, I found, or 12 or 13, I found my father via the yellow pages. I think my mom may have made contact the very first time because I was so insistent on it. She was like, if you don't get up here and see your son, he's going to freaking like lose his mind. And this is at 12 or 13. So he came up for two or like a week. Um, he and his wife, they came up from Houston, hung out for a week. And then, which felt like three days. But then when I was 14, like a year later, I flew down to Houston to live with him, got homesick, moved back like six months later. And then I went and lived down there uh, for a few months um, when I was 15 too. And uh, got homesick, came home. And then when I was 21, I sought him out, called him up. So there was that gap from, what is that, good Lord? Is that six Four, years? Six years. And I, my, and my stepmom's like, he's not doing well. And I, you know, so I'm like, I got to get down there. And I just dropped everything I was doing here. I was on probation in three different counties in Indiana, Indiana for doing dumb stuff. But dropped all that, went drove to Houston and... Um, Three months after living with my father and like living my dreams too, really, we were, you know, wade fishing in the Gulf of Mexico, um, flying kites, drinking beers together finally for the first time at the bar at the ice house. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, everything was going smoothly for the most part. I was still kind of just being reckless, like quitting jobs, losing jobs. And uh, three months of that, and we came home from a graduation party. The house was taped off. Um, two days later, I came back to Indianapolis, and um, long story short, got picked up for warrants, those three warrants, and got sat down um, first in Johnson County for 107 days in a county jail. And in there, I was able to have, I had a Bible, and I had an AA basic textbook. 
and I wasn't into reading the Bible at that moment. And it wasn't because I was like mad at God or anything like that. Like I was cool with God. It was just a little too over my head. I couldn't wrap my head around it. So I would read the, I'd find a lot of joy in reading the personal stories in the back of the basic AA text. And then I was able to write to the general service office out in New York and they would write back and I was just like, that's the first time I've ever had good news in the via the mail in my life. Like, let's go. Like, this is cool. And they're out in New York. I've never been in New York. You know, I've never really been anywhere but Houston. So what is Ohio. that? When you say you wrote to them and they wrote back and it was good news, what is what does that process look like for someone who's trying to understand or maybe even someone who's considering seeking help for themselves? This is 99. So this is 24 years ago now. So it was just common, and plus, if you're in jail, that's like the only way. There was no internet. So today we have over, you know, 450 meetings per week in Indianapolis, and I think that's probably cutting it a little short. Yeah, but you can just Google alcoholism and AA, and uh, yeah, nowadays it seems yeah pretty straightforward. You like build a campfire, and so what was the good news that came back from that letter? Uh, that I wasn't alone. Yeah, okay. That was probably, honestly, the biggest takeaway. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing, right? Once you learn, you're not alone. Because I think that's... You're living in your own silo. Everybody is, right? You're very myopic about your own life, especially at a younger age. You're not thinking about the world around you. It's like, these are my problems. This is my shit. And no one understands me, right? Right, Right. And you're right in it. And, you know, if you're an alcoholic or a drug addict, chances are you uh, were writing to a mom or maybe a dad or an aunt or a grandma and you know their response is well honey the show must go on it just doesn't have the same ring as like hey we're gonna send two men down there to talk to you and you know we're gonna help you when you get out gotcha okay <laughs> just, yeah man that's that's awesome it's like so the resources are out there today so. it's it's a light in the dark at that point yes, sir. Right? okay so then you do your 107 days and then bounce to decatur county jail sum up my uh, another 90 days that i owed them for um not fulfilling my obligation on my operating while intoxicated charge that i got out there over a summer then i got out and two days later i was back to my same old shenanigans i was snooping through my mom's bag grabbing some weed smoking some weed had a friend flying in from houston we were going to the, uh, the grocery store to get cigarettes and Doritos and we leave with cigarettes and a case of beer, you know, and off six months later, I'm homeless, psychotic again. Well, for the first time, rather. All right. So that's a big jump. So you, you have, did you ever meet with the two guys that came down from New York? Yes. And they were local. They were in Johnson County. Uh, The way it worked, New York, telephone, Indianapolis, Indianapolis, phone, Johnson County, Johnson County sent somebody out. So you met with these guys. Obviously, that meeting wasn't the life-changing event because your next thing you know, you're out running your old game. Yeah, you know what's funny enough is that I was I had a grasp on recovery. You know, when I was at Johnson County, when I got bumped over to Decatur County and I got sat down, I ended up getting punched in the face uh, in my cell and getting eight stitches. And was visited by Gideons, and I couldn't get anybody from AA or recovery related to come and visit me. It was, and I couldn't relate to Gideons, and I was getting punched in the face. So it changed. Everything kind of changed before I even left. Like I improved, but I fell off before I even left jail. 
And so I didn't contact resources when I left Decatur County Jail. I contacted my mom. So then what eventually was the catalyst that led you to say, you know what, I do need to change? And I, this kind of goes to one of the questions that I sent to you that said, you know, this is one of the things we might cover, but I'm guessing that this is probably one of those moments in your life where you saw a real opportunity to make a hard left or a hard right versus just keep going down the path you were on. What did that look like to you and what was going through your mind when you made that change? Man, my mind just went a thousand directions on that. <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't, it was like, for me, I was like going back to just doing what I always knew what I did. It was kind of like a rat. Like they just kind of go wherever the water is with the cocaine in it after they've had the water with the cocaine in it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't know enough about addiction or alcoholism to even understand what was going on. I just went and picked up a little bit of smoke and a little bit of beer and the smoke was one thing the beer was another like it let it just goes one three nine the rest of the case real quick for an alcoholic and that's what it does every single time uh it gets in my system which that ultimately leads me back to doing what ultimately tickles my brain because it's the pinnacle of the high that i've gotten which is for me it's my doc which was drug of choice uh crack cocaine which ultimately leads me to homelessness so the first time you found yourself homeless, what were the circumstances that put you there? I had, so let's see, I had gotten back from um, jail and then I went off on this mission and started smoking PCP, crack cocaine, drinking beer, whiskey, and um, it kind of melted my brain a little bit. Um, to, and I was emotionally, I was on, it got me to a point where I was emotionally unstable and my mom was like, I gotta take you somewhere. She took me to the St. Francis ER, where I was so I was so psychotic. I thought that our doctor was Robin Williams and Doctor Doolittle, and um, I thought that if they gave me the right pills, that I'd be able to pitch in the major leagues. So my brain was, you know, out there. So I went through a six-day stay at a psychiatric unit, and then after I got out of there, I was able to stay sober for an extended period of time. I think it was like 18 months and then I relapsed. And then it was like six months later, I was back to like sleeping on a floor, waking up in vomit. And my mom was like, I'm going to take you down to Salvation Army Adult Rehabilitation Center and just kind of let you figure things out. And I was like, all right, cool. So I go down to Salvation Army Adult Rehabilitation Center. I don't even have enough identification to get into the doors. Uh, the homeless shelter or rehabilitation center for homeless people. So I had to do a couple of things like go down to the social security office, get a social card or fill out an application. I don't even remember the processes that I went through at that moment. Um, the guys at the counter at Salvation Army were able to point me in the right direction. But after I got my identification and stuff like that, I was able to go into Salvation Army's adult rehabilitation center where I graduated or actually graduated myself the first time through their six month program. I was so foggy and so messed up off of uh, Depakote, Respidol and all these other medications that I was in coming down from, you know, the trauma of losing my father, which we didn't even know it was trauma at the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, the chemical dependency and the crashing of the dopamines, my whole system was shutting down. I was at, six foot tall and 120 
when I got dropped off there. Wow. So in the 18 <clears throat> months that you were sober in between, were you going to meetings at that time? Yes. That was my first, like I would say, real experience in AA. I was like 21 and a half. Back then we would smoke cigarettes, eat donuts, drink coffee. That was a form of managing, I think, for a lot of people back then. And I remember hearing about a sponsor or something. And I was like, I want a sponsor that has the white Corvette out in the parking sure, lot. Sure, it says yeah. fly on the front of it. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, Bruce ended up being just an amazing guy, though. And, um, man, I'll tell you what, just like holding hands with another man and, and praying was so uncomfortable for me. And that was an experience I had with Bruce, you know, and it was scary. And it ended up being a really cool experience and there wasn't anything to be afraid of. Yeah, let me actually, let's dive into that real quick. So I think a lot of guys have that apprehension about being physical with another man in a completely non-sexual context. But just like, you know, for some guys, hugging is really tough. You know, even just doing a high five where you clap hands and there's at least your fists in between you when you're given a hug. And then, yeah, holding hands outside of a, even outside of a prayer setting would be, I mean, whatever. But just the, the idea of being in physical contact with another man is scary for a lot of people. Do you have any thoughts on why that is or what was going through your mind? Was it a fear of any kind or just like a uncomfortable with how close you're like with personal space. Do you have any well, thoughts? Yeah, I have some thoughts, but I think John Eldridge could probably better sum it up. The author of wild at heart. He did wild at heart a long time. Oh, ago. I know wild at heart. Yeah. Yeah. That was my men's group was based off of wild yeah. at heart. Yeah. So to sum it all up in a nutshell, if you take away a man's sword, he's going to take a stick and make, you know, kids will make sticks into swords kind of mentality. And I think to tie into that a little bit, I think that, I just think they were primal creatures at the end of the, at the beginning of the of times, you know. And sometimes we stay really. Uh, some cultures and some men growing up, they stay really true to this really strong exterior core. But I don't think from the men that I've met that are that way, like my grandfather's that way, you know. I don't I don't even hug my grandfather. It's a firm handshake. You yeah, know? I think they love intently and passionately in their own way. Um, I just don't think that, I don't know. Do you feel like it broke something down in you? Like a wall came down the first time you had that experience and you realized, oh, this connection feels good in my soul. Yeah, no. Because for me, I had like um, sex, I experienced sexual abuse as a child. I have three incidents, three different times that I, you know, we could touch on later, but so it had a weird, really weird negative connotation to it to me. I didn't even, I grew up without a father, you know what I mean? I didn't even, I didn't get a hug from my father ever. I didn't, I never remember holding my dad's hand ever. Mm-hmm. So in that moment, so, once you I was came- like, who's this sick weirdo that's like trying to, you know, he's got me in his den at his house. You know, we just finished a pot of coffee and the 12 steps, you know, not the 12 steps, but then we're on the third step. So, you know, I'm, it just seemed weird to me. I was like, this dude's like smoking cigarettes and eating donuts and drinking coffee. And now we're going to hold hands and get on our knees and pray. Like that whole thing just seemed like too weird for me. And you know, everybody, you don't have to do the third step the way that we did it. But for me, it was kind of cathartic in a weird way because like 
for the first time I'm addressing that this makes me uncomfortable. Like I am truly uncomfortable right now. Yeah. You know, and so that was the beginning of opening up the doors and starting to look at that trauma because, you know, when I was 21, we would have done this podcast. You would have heard nothing about the topic of being abused as a child, you know, sexually. It just was too taboo. Yeah. I wasn't going to out myself like that until I came out and I was just like, holy shit, that's powerful. Uh, there's no way that, that anybody should ever have to feel like they have to hold something in and not share it. Yeah. How big of a weight did it feel like was lifted off of you when you were able to let some of that out? Well, I'm here today instead of not being here. So that's the difference. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So what for anyone listening who's not familiar with the 12 steps, what is the third step? We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives become unmanageable. Um, that's the first step. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Uh, step two. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And that's like more of the third step prayer. It's like the extended version a little bit. Gotcha. So that's, third step. that's really yeah. what was the... You know, holding hands, get on your knees and pray. Kind of that. So yeah. When you said it doesn't always manifest in that way, but the the concept is it's a prayer. Yes, it is. It, there is a third step prayer. It's um, God, I offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as Thou will. Relieve me of the bondage of self, so that I may better do Thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help by Thy power, Thy love, and Thy way of life. May I do Thy will always. Yeah, it's super short, beautiful good way to start your day you've given me goosebumps a handful of times and it's you know like i said at the beginning this is the really the third time the third day that we've spent together yeah. ever yeah and you know so I, I knew a little bit of your history just because you know anna and jenna talk and so you know we've yeah. randomly connected on facetime a couple times here yeah. and there between what peripheral stuff i've known and the conversation we've had yesterday and now hearing more of your story today it's incredible to me that you are sitting here and with the quality of life that you currently have and everything that you have going for you and i I definitely want to get to all of that but the key of it is what was the transition for you where was where would you say was rock bottom when you decided absolutely this has to change and what was the catalyst for that that put you on the upward trajectory? Like, obviously, it sounds like you hit bottom a couple times, you bounced, and you'd go back down. Yeah. What was the final time that put you on your current path of sobriety, and how long have you been sober sure. to this point? Five and a half years. It's um, a great question. Um, that brings me a lot of great joy to talk about that, actually. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> That's Thank awesome. You. Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, I, was, I had been around for 20 years. I'd probably at 20 years of sobriety and I'm talking backing it up to like where the pivotal moment is to where I started this journey. So, you know, for that 20 year period that before this last chunk, it was like I was in and out, but I, um, I would had probably like, I don't know, 16 or 17 years of like sobriety or clean time in that 20. So there's really three years of like horrific relapses, you know what I mean? In that 20 year period. So 
but it's still it would be just like a year here a year there and then to go out after having a year and to come back i mean anybody that's gone out and come back knows how gut-wrenching it is every single one it doesn't matter if it's 30 days 90 days like they all hurt when mm. you go back out so it's funny you know to, to answer your question you know i'll never forget i i put the dope down i'm watching ray donovan and this guy he's an adult and he keeps on reverting or he's stunted at an emotional level of a 14 year old and i'm like oh i can identify with that because i started using drugs heavily at 14 and then you know they say that you emotionally stunt your growth at the time you started when you picked up and started using heavy uh the difference was with this character and on the ray donovan move or series was that his emotional maturity was stunted by way of being molested by a priest in their congregation and so when I heard that, I was like, holy shit. Like, this actually happened. Because you got to remember, if you remember, I said there were three incidents. You know, um, the baseball director one is the one that I buried. Like, I had talked about to my other friends in uh, Bill W. You know, I'd talk about the stuff that happened back home with my stepdad. But I buried that one with the baseball director, you know, and never talked about it. How old were you in that? Like 39, 40. I was like 12, 13. It was when we were living in that cute little house over off of that farm. Okay, so that was really right before you took the hard right into a heavy drug culture. Bro, when it hit, it hit hard. Yeah, I was like, whoa. Yeah, I was able to trace back. Because after that time, I started eating like many thins, inhaling butane, um, consuming tobacco, and like chaw, you know. Now that you're watching Ray Donovan, you see this and you make this connection in your head. What's the next thing that goes through your mind? Pick up the phone, get on the horn, and call these people that are close to me that I've been, like, low-key lying to. And then tell them that I've finally admitted to my, been able to admit to myself that something very serious has happened in my life. And I've not been forthright in telling you this. Because I've made amends to these people or, and I've discussed and full length i've sat down with a sponsor and gone over my personal inventory of things that i've done wrong the thing that i never was prompted to address was maybe anything done wrong to you Mm -hmm. you know and it was hard for me to wrap my head around me being fondled and enticed and then led into being fondled again by an older man it was hard for me to see that me having a part in it and I know now then I was a child that was victimized, but I played a part in carrying that around and not telling anybody. So anyways, I, sh- I could have spoke up. There were things I've had a part in. I've seen my part in it, but it's hard when you've been victimized. And uh, so that was where like outside counseling really helped because AA is great for addressing alcoholism. If you have a father and you grew up in a, you know, somewhat stable community, but you got wasted and ruined your life, like, because you don't know how to not drink, like, AA is great for you. But if, like, you have a deep emotional trauma, um, there are other platforms. So you got on the on the phone, you called your sponsor, you called the people close to you, and you yeah. unburdened yourself yeah. of this. Yeah. And so that... W- so that was, the, that was the beginning. That was kind of just like the beginning of, um, like, coming out of a closet and having this whole new, like, maybe my head spin a little bit. I was like, 
wow, there are other ways to say come out of the closet on a topic. Mm-hmm. You know, my sometimes constructed view can a saying can mean one thing and one thing only. But I just it made me really I, the one of the first things I was able to do is really like have that empathy for all of my gay friends, you know, sure. or all of yeah. my friends who have had to like keep their sexuality a secret, you know, how freeing that must have been for them to not have to do that anymore. I felt like I was able to, I was experiencing what that must be like on some level. And so that was really cool to be further connected in that community. And once you unloaded that, it seems like that was the last stone that kept pulling you back down. Because at that point, that was where you got clean and stayed clean, yeah. right? Yeah. Man, that's crazy. So really, the trauma of your life, your father leaving, the revolving door of your mom's boyfriends, the your father taking his own life, the abuse and other incidents that, that occurred to you, all of these things, like you're unloading them slowly over time. And you're able to get sober for a little while, and then something will pull you back down. And once you got rid of that last big thing, it was like you can breathe, and now you can move on. Is that kind of does that ring with you? Yeah, yeah. That was like it was like you know what? Dropping that piece for me was kind of like okay, now you can work step one. There you go. Yeah. You know, now we can now we can lay down, and now you can spend a year in your own place. You're you know forty at this point, you know, and, uh, you can pay your own bills for, you know, um, a while and see what that's like. And you can sit down and I was able to make, you know, I've been being an adult throughout this whole process of in and out and relapsing and making a mess of my life. You know, I've also had some stability, but and God has blessed me with some resources. You know, I was able to have my own apartment. Uh, I had a full-size bed in, a, in one room, and I had two other full-size beds in the other bedroom for my two boys. And, you know, uh, it allowed me uh, a medium, a space to collect my thoughts, start my practices, start to pray, start to make my bed, start to journal, start to meditate. You know, and then once I focused on God and got right and centered with God, I was able to start to branch out and do other things and focus on other hobbies and stuff of that nature. And that was that was a really cool um, time of my life, that solo year that I spent just kind of discovering myself and unpacking myself a little bit. So you're a 40-some-year-old dude. 40-some, yeah, 40. Living in a post-grad, college, yep. first job yep. type. Uh, and it's almost like, really, like you talked about, you have a before life and an afterlife, and this, or, or a second life, a second shot at life. And this is your second shot at life. So you're basically starting on step one. Yep. Oh, you know, like some kids will go through high school and college and that's phase one of life. And then after college is phase two. And your phase two is starting in that same location, yes, like sir. small apartment, little, you know, Ride a bike, minimal. Yes. Bike. That's, that's crazy. That's <laughs> forerunner. That's awesome. Yeah. I want to know more about what you're doing now and what lights you up. Like, what do you feel is your mission and purpose that gives you the energy to get up in the morning and pursue the mundane stuff? Because on the other side of that is this purpose that you get to apply yourself to. And I know that you were talking about some of the creative stuff you've got going now. Share a little bit more about that and what that looks like and and what kind of brought that to the forefront for you as you're looking to move forward. Sure. Sure. So a lot of it, it's like, like we were talking about earlier, 
you were talking about the starting off the beginning of your, you know, the second chapter of your life, so to speak. Like, and there have been other books written about how the first half of your life can be kind of you making the container that you're going to put the rest of your life in, or God's going to put the rest of your life in if you, you know, get out of the way. And so that mission kind of evolves. And, um, what I like to do is keep it simple, man. It's kind of my mojo is keeping things simple, taking it easy one day at a time sort of thing. And so like it's focuses on communication and the main overall agenda is world peace. And I feel like in order to chip away at achieving world peace, we do that through connectivity and communication. We do that by being transparent and all inclusive. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's my purpose in life is um, just to kind of chip away at world peace. And there are lots of different mediums and platforms that um, we can do that on. Right now, I'm working with a group who is allowing me the stability and the structure that I need in order to um, go out and express some creative and have creative freedoms to express some of the information that I've um, gained over the years through recovery. I want to know more about your, your stand-up. Yeah. So yeah. this is something I learned about you last night that blew my mind, is that you do stand-up comedy. Yeah. And you dropped a couple lines last night. I was like, oh, shit, that is good. That's good stuff. <laughs> and, you know, it brings me back to, I've heard, you know, plenty of interviews with comedians. And one of the recurring themes is almost every comedian comes from a traumatic yeah. background. There's trauma in the life. And a great outlet for that is to be able to address it and make light of it. Yeah. And so hearing the jokes that you laid on us last night, I was like, oh, my God, I can't wait to hear this guy's story because this is some dark shit. But it's funny yeah. Yeah. because you, you're able to look back at it and spin it in a way that can make others laugh. But at the same time, make others aware that this is real. This happens to people and we need to be accommodating and, you know, really just. We need to be there for people because you don't know anyone's story yeah. until you sit down and have a conversation like this. You don't know anyone's story. Yeah. You can assume, right? right? But just making it accessible through a medium like comedy, I find is really interesting. Yeah. So what got you into comedy and why did you pick that avenue? Yeah, good question. I wanted a, a healthy way to deal with some of the trauma and the stress and some of the pains of having, you know, three lawnmowers stolen out of your backyard in one year kind of stuff. And um, so acting and I, I ran into an, uh, an amazing comedian in Indianapolis, a good friend, really cool dude. It's helped me a lot. Just kind of realized that there is some potential there to be had. And it is a, an opportunity for a creative outlet. I go through this comedy boot camp downtown Indianapolis and I learned the basics of doing stand-up comedy as a creative outlet to deal with some stress, depression, and that sort of thing. And then my second time performing, I got paid and then found out that that's all that was required for me to be a professional comedian was <laughs> one paid act. So my $11 gig at the American Legion got me in the game. That's cool, man. <laughs> so when, when you're, what's your creative process like? As you're writing and thinking about stuff, are you uh, actively drawing on memories or is it just like something will come to you and you make a note i mean how, how does that process work for you some of it's storytelling some of it as i'm drawing on a like some exercise some of it i look at as an exercise to draw back on traumatic events rewrite the story and, and put a funny twist on it after i've recovered yeah and then present it to 
you know, people who may get something from it. I guess the last thing I want to ask you is based on all of your life experience and everything we've talked about, if you could go back and talk to yourself at that turning point, 12, 13 years old, what advice would you give to yourself at that point in time if you could go back? Um, there are people out there that care. Like, don't listen to that voice inside your head that says, you're alone, dude. Like, legit, nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to hear it at all. Um, there are people out there that love you and that want to listen to you, help you, and guide you. And you're not alone. Really, I just want to thank you so much for sharing all of this. Uh, you're an incredible person. Your story is so... I mean, incredible is the word for it. I mean, looking at the history and what you came through to be where you are today, sitting in this chair, someone who just meets you today and hears your story would think you're two different people. And I think you might even say you're two different people, as we talked about, right? The beginning half of your life and now uh, effectively a reboot, yeah. you know, 2.0. And yeah. it's exciting to see where you're taking this. And man, I'm so excited to get to know you better and continue to grow this relationship. I think it's incredible that you were so open to this conversation, having met me twice uh, and having no idea. So I do want to tell the story about <laughs> funny. Yeah. yeah. So Jason and I, we were on a, a FaceTime call a couple weeks ago. Anna and Jenna were on a FaceTime call and Jason and I happened to be present. So I pitched the idea to him, hey, I'm starting a podcast. You, would you be interested? And he was like, yeah, man, absolutely. Uh, I'm interested. So. Uh, we did not exchange cell phone numbers at this point. And so I went into the family group chat from, it was months ago that whatever we were bantering about, I found his number and I found his number by just process of elimination of who I didn't know in the chain and knowing that he was in there. So I, I texted him and said, Hey man, uh, if you're still interested in doing the podcast, great. Uh, send me your email and I'll send you like the, just a general idea of what the questions are and what we're going to talk about. So I didn't hear anything for like a day. And then I get a text back that's just his email address. And so I'm like, all right, cool. He get, I guess he's still in. And I sent him the questions and then didn't hear anything back. We got here yesterday and uh, I was like, hey, man, are you still down to the pocket? He's like, yeah. And it, did, it took him a minute to put the game. He was like, what were you thinking? Like, all of a sudden, you just had, he didn't know it was me. We're blowing up, baby. Yeah, so he, he didn't know that I was the one that had texted him. He saved me in his phone as client number five, like just a random name and had no idea what this podcast was or that it was me. So that was kind of funny to realize that, I mean, that just shows how open you are to conversation. You get a random text from someone who wants to talk to you and you're like, absolutely, let's yeah. set it up. Yeah. I love that about you, man. And I think that we need more people like that in the world that are willing to reveal themselves. Because I think in revealing yourself, you invite someone else to do the same. And that's how we start to break down some of these walls. And, you know, that piece that you're talking about starts yeah, with yeah. your individual self. You have to break down your own walls and expose all of the crap and let, you know, let the trauma, let the everything else spill out of you that you're ashamed of, afraid of, all these things. And once you let that go, it frees you up. You're so much lighter and you can move about the world in a different, more productive way. The gift of sobriety comes through way of surrendering, taking the credit out of it, taking the good compliment 
the sting out of a bad compliment and taking the, you know, the, and neutralizing the euphoria that comes with a good comment and just being, allowing room for God and kind of setting aside what we think we know and kind of letting God move and direct us. And I think that's what you're doing. What's what we're doing. I can tell, and I'm honored that you asked me to speak. I just think that I would be lying if I were to give you the impression that I'm doing this because I'm not doing it like we are through. I think it's all connected, man. You know, like you said, higher power, uh, whoever or whatever it is that means that to you or is that to you. At the end of the day, it all leads one place and we're all connected on some level. Yeah. And so, yes, it's this connection. Now we're going to have a stronger relationship and our collective ability to have a conversation is going to, you know, effectively we're doubling in size, right? So it's the same as having one twig versus five or six or 10. And eventually if we can get that thing big enough with enough guys that are buying into this idea of, I can let this go and I won't be in danger. I think a lot of that, you know, because then when you let go of that stress and that anxiety, that's, that's what shortens your fuse to violence, to all these other things. You're holding on too tight to all this shit that really just fucking let it go. And it it frees you up. I mean, this is, and this is coming from a guy who admittedly I've lived a a very sheltered life as a child in, in, in terms of not having to experience any of the trauma that you went through. And still, even in my life, all the stuff that I held on to, stuff that I was ashamed of, stuff that happened to me that was certainly not as dramatic as what you went through, but to me it was. Yeah. Because relative to the rest of my life, it was very traumatic. Absolutely. Man. Right? But Absolutely. in writing the book and putting all of that down in writing and then throwing it out into the world, whether anyone reads it or not, the fact that it's out there means it's off of my chest. Mm-hmm. And that's transformed me. And so having conversations like this is just an abridged way, or actually just a faster way. It's a whole lot easier to speak than it is to write all of these thoughts. Right. But that same principle, right? It's, it's liberating and it's driving the conversation and hopefully inspiring other guys to be able to do that same thing. Put your sword down, put the sword down and let, you know, create some room for love and personal growth, and that's the mission. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, hey, man, thank well you said. so much again. I appreciate you. I love you. Yeah, I love you too, man. And, uh, yeah, maybe in a couple of years we'll do this again. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Anytime, All right, brother. brother. Anytime. All right, man. Thank awesome. you. My pleasure. <laughs>